Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm David French. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. Today, with just days left before the election happens, what are the fights that still matter? And who's going to win? And then, will the Trump era make the union fall apart? For our last pre-election episode, we're joined by David French, a Time Magazine columnist, a senior editor at The Dispatch, and the author of the new book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, welcome to The Argument. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a privilege. I'm a long-time listener. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Indeed. So we're going to talk about your book and secession and other potential threats to the union in the second segment. But let's start with where we find ourselves with just days left before the 2020 presidential election. Our longtime listeners may remember an episode from June 2019 where we discussed a debate roiling the conservative intelligentsia back then about so-called David Frenchism what it meant for conservatives' relationship to liberal democracy and especially to the presidency of Donald Trump. So now we have the man himself on the show. And so, David, can you tell us both what David Frenchism actually means, but also maybe more importantly, if the polls are right and Donald Trump loses next Tuesday, will David Frenchism claim victory and be totally vindicated? (laughs) Well, I'm going to frame, even though David Frenchism was not intended as a compliment, I'm going to frame it in the best possible light to me. So the, the term came from an essay that uh, Sora Bamari, he's the New York Post editorial page editor, he wrote a piece in First Things called Against David Frenchism. And so essentially <laughs> what David Frenchism was, was I, I, I did not sufficiently view politics as, quote, war and enmity. Therefore, I was too committed to civility and decency when I should realize that those are second order values. And that also I was too committed to the principles of America's classical liberal founding. So here's how I frame David Frenchism. It is defending the principles of the American founding without abandoning kindness, civility, and decency and a commitment to American pluralism. So that that's my framing of David Frenchism. And if Trump loses, does that mean that David Frenchism triumphs, well, it would remain to be seen because if Trump loses, what really it is is the starter pistol for GOP Civil War Round 2. With GOP Civil War Round 1 that Trump won in in the 2016 primary, GOP Civil War Round 2, the outcome of it will depend greatly on things like the margin of victory, the immediate sort of first take First blush uh, blame game. Will the Trump world blame never Trump? People like me, sort of therefore casting us further into outer darkness. I I predict that they will, David. Yeah, I feel like that's the only sure thing about all this. (laughs) Oh, but it depends on how credible that is. So if it's a 
small margin of victory, then it becomes much more credible to say that this small slice of traditional Republicans who did not embrace Donald Trump are responsible for his loss. But if he loses in a 92 or a 96 scale sort of Clinton-Bush, Clinton-Dole kind of loss, then that's just not going to carry much water. And I think a lot of people would look then at Trumpism and Trump and say, let's not do that again. So I've heard versions of this argument from people in the vast and varied never Trump fold before, right? (laughs) Vast. But I I actually think you should be making the reverse argument. That we did it? Right. Well, right. That the, the critique of never Trump has always been that you, we, I guess, Mm -hmm. are a bunch of pointy-headed intellectual types who don't represent any voters, stand for these abstractions like, you know, classical liberalism, whatever that is, sit in ivory towers and cocktail parties, and don't connect with real voters on the ground. And to me, the bigger Trump's defeat is, and I'm going to ask all of us for predictions a little later in the show, but the bigger Trump's defeat is, the more you could say that a substantial number of Republican voters, often suburban, white, Catholic or evangelical, or at least religion-friendly types, ended up swinging away from Donald Trump. And so the bigger the vote, the more I feel like you should stand up the day after Election Day and say, you know, there's a David Frenchist third party in America that just swung the election and everyone needs to court it. Everyone needs to beat a path to my door. Right. So they'll be like the new white working class. <laughs> That's right. The David, the David, literally David French's face will be the soccer mom, you know, the swing voter of uh, 2024. I don't think delusions of grandeur tend to build credibility very much, <laughs> but you know, all joking aside, there is a core of truth, not on the ideological side of things, but on the temperamental side of things. I do think there is going to be a revulsion against the incivility and indecency of the Trump era. And there will be a move, hopefully, one that triumphs within the GOP back towards decency, back towards civility, not necessarily because everyone is suddenly rediscovered principle. They just don't like to lose. Okay, well, having built, so I just tried to build up Never Trump. (laughs) Now let me try not to tear it down exactly, but to suggest a different possibility, right? Which is that you got into a little Twitter argument I noticed uh, earlier this week over people referring to at least parts of Never Trump as a grift. And I think probably they had in mind groups like the Lincoln Project, which we've talked about on this show, that's the collection of Republican strategists or former Republican strategists running ads and raising money against Trump. And you were very critical of the idea that anyone in or anyone you knew in the never Trump fold was sort of in it for money rather than principles. And I will say that I couldn't help noticing just after you had that (laughs) argument that Axios came out with a story about the Lincoln Project's plan to build a vast media empire after the election. Right. Look, if anyone involved in the Lincoln Project had decided to go the other way and say, you know, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but, you know, now he's doing fantastic and MAGA, there would be prime slots for them on Fox News. There would be book deals and consultancies, and they would all be raking it in, right? Right. And so I don't understand how, for any of these guys, it's a good career move to sort of burn all their bridges to the traditional Republican Party. I think they know well enough that the Democratic Party is happy to have their help, but is not going to be 
hiring them to run their races going forward. And so if this was all sort of a big prologue to starting a a media company, I mean, there are just so many easier ways to grift. I just, I feel like I've spoken to these guys. I think that their anguish about the direction of the country, their sense of kind of being patriotically affronted by this disgust disgusting, disloyal abomination of a presidency is is sincere. And I think that if you want a different sort of Republican Party, it's a good thing that there is this nascent never Trump media empire. I, you know, I'm I'm much more sympathetic to that view than some of my sort of colleagues in the broader never Trump right. The one of the reasons why I'm weary about this is that it is a common tactic now online to completely avoid arguments by attacking assumed motives. So Never Trump has been called a grift since the day Never Trump was born. People will say, well, the mere fact, for example, that I'm on this podcast is proof that I have properly appealed to the New York Times, for example, and that I'm now accepted into the social circles to which I'd been long. And people underestimate how lucrative appearing on this hey, podcast is. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm considering spending my argument. How do I spend my argument cash right now? So all of these things are this attribution of motives to an opponent rather than dealing with an argument from an opponent. And I don't know the Lincoln Project, guys. I, I don't think I personally know any of them. I know a lot of the other sort of never Trump conservatives. I know them personally. We've had long conversations. And I know that the last thing that's motivating them is cash. And I know that an awful lot of them have paid a pretty darn high price to uh, maintain their stance, including not just lost economic opportunities, but living in a world of threats and hatred that is really sort of hard for people to believe if they're not in it. I don't know Steve Schmidt. I cannot vouch for him. I, I don't know Rick Wilson. But I do reflexively rebel against, because based on everyone I personally know, and knowing their stories, I reflexively rebel against this idea it's just a grift. I think that the allegation is just a grift is a method of avoiding a tough argument. But so I think the conservative objection, the reason conservatives are more likely to see a grift in those guys and a few other columnists who I won't name for the sake of collegiality is that there have been some (laughs) never-Trump conservatives for whom... The reasons that they were allegedly conservative seem to evaporate incredibly quickly. I mean, I it's funny. I think the Lincoln Project gets, and here we're doing it, way too much attention. <laughs> um, I, I come from a tribe within the conservative world that would have been the natural enemies of these political consultants that populate the Lincoln Project, which I come from, I mean, Southern evangelical former religious liberty, pro-life litigator, sort of the core of the activist, ideological activist wing of the conservative movement. And these consultants were like our natural enemies. Those were the ones who were saying to Mitt Romney, don't talk about life as much. Here's the polling sweet spot. Go to the polling sweet spot. And so you would have this tension always in the conservative world between the ideological wing and the consultant class. And there was no love lost between those two. But one of my positions post-2016 is a lot of stuff is scrambled now. And, you know, sitting here trying to divine someone's true motives when they're making often arguments that I think are true and correct, but I'm not going to listen to them because I don't like my presumption of their motives. I don't know. I just don't find that argument 
all that compelling. And then when you're talking about a relatively small band of never Trump folks to then say, well, now I'm going to slice this even narrower. Here are the good never Trumpers and the bad never Trumpers. No, no, that's the crucial distinction, David. (laughs) There have to be good never Trumpers and you you can't have a good faction without insane internal divisions. (laughs) You're never never going to build a, a splittist deviationist movement if you aren't willing to then purge half the movement every six months. It reminds me of Life of Brian. What was it? The People's Front of Judea versus the Judean People's, <laughs> the Judean Front. people's Front. Yeah. You know, the Judean People's Front was obviously correct. <laughs> I, I don't even know. There's no question. No, there. no. People's Front of Judea, Ross. We're going to have to fight about that. <laughs> All right. So let's, yeah, it's, it, you're absolutely right that we've devoted enough time to never Trump. So let's talk about a few election issues. Let's start with something that came up on our show in a listener question. So the Republican Senate just confirmed Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. This was a big victory for conservatives generally, but I think religious conservatives in particular. And one of the questions hanging over this is whether politically this confirmation was actually a mistake for Trump in the sense that instead of he could have kept the seat open and basically told his evangelical and Catholic supporters that they needed to turn out for him in order to fill that seat after the election, which was, I think, one of the factors in 2016, the idea that only by electing Trump could you fill the Scalia seat. Uh, But instead, he's the Senate has confirmed her. And David, do you think that as someone who talks to a lot of religious conservatives, do you think there's any vote that sort of drifts away from Trump because of this, that basically says, okay, we got what we wanted out of him. We don't like him in these other ways. Now we can feel safe staying home, voting third party, voting Biden. Or is that just sort of a media fancy? I would say there might be some very small number of people who feel like that. The larger number would be the sort of religious conservative that is sick of being browbeaten by people like me, (laughs) (laughs) for example, and saying, look, David, we've got Amy Coney Barrett. Would Hillary have given us Amy Coney Barrett? Would Joe Biden give us Amy Coney Barrett? Would President Mitt Romney have fought this hard for this justice here while people are voting? Sort of steamrolling through a lot of the statements of previous Republican senators. So it reaffirms the sort of idea that, especially amongst religious conservatives, that has taken hold very strongly, which is nobody delivers for evangelicals like Donald Trump delivers for evangelicals. And so I think the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, to the extent that there was wavering, a lot of wavering um, amongst the white evangelical vote, helped shore him up more than granted a permission structure to leave him. And also it's because of who Amy Coney Barrett is. I mean, to the extent that you can have such a thing as like a uh, judicial icon, you know, you, you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, of course, a judicial icon on the left. Amy Coney Barrett was the closest thing that the conservative world had to a judicial icon, uh, modern judicial icon on the right, entirely because of the Dianne Feinstein line of questioning that said the dogma lives loudly within you. And the interesting thing is, I think people will be surprised, honestly, at how evolutionary she is, not revolutionary on the court. Wait, I'm sorry, but I don't understand how you can say that after that spectacle on the night that she was confirmed, right? She no longer needed Donald Trump. She's voted in, and her first move is to stand on that balcony with him and make a campaign commercial. I mean, to me, that was just kind of rubbing it in the face of all of us who are heartsick and terrified about what this court means, you know, particularly after that appalling Kavanaugh ruling kind of seeming to open up 
an avenue to discount a lot of absentee ballots that um, are postmarked before Election Day but appear after. So they're already, from my perspective, flashing lights saying we are ready to install Donald Trump no matter what you do, you know, suck it libs. (laughs) If there was any doubt that she was our enemy, that she was a person who was determined to solidify minority rule, that moment erased it. Well, let me let me have two responses to that. One is Donald Trump has a talent for placing people in really difficult positions. So you have the president of the United States, you're being sworn in, and then the president of the United States is saying, hey, join me on this balcony. And you've, you have these choices. Do you say, no, driver, get me my car, which would be a dramatic, a very, very dramatic statement? Or do you just sort of say, okay, and go along? And I saw that spectacle and I was deeply, uh, I, I did not like it either, Michelle. I did not think that was an appropriate spectacle, especially as close to an election. I didn't think it was appropriate. Also, I have sympathy for people who are being placed in these very difficult and unusual situations by Trump. And frankly, they don't always respond in the right way. But I'll say right, this. But you're kind of saying that she will respond the right way when she's called upon in, you know, maybe a week to stand up to Donald Trump. Well, I'm not going to say that she's going to respond the right way. I'm going to say, here's how I think she will respond. I think that she has a distinct judicial philosophy that is going to lend a degree of predictability. And I, and I could be wrong. Legal predictions are perilous, but I'm going to go ahead and provide a legal prediction. (laughs) What we have right now is an emerging jurisprudence from the Republican-nominated majority that essentially is saying this about state election disputes. If the legal change is coming from the state officials, like Pennsylvania extending the absentee pallet deadline, because these elections are state elections, we're going to defer to state officials. If the legal change is coming from a federal judge overriding state officials. No, but this was overriding a state Supreme Court. Wisconsin was overriding a federal district court judge. Right, but this isn't, so just just to give our listeners more background, and you can correct me if I get this wrong, David, but what you're describing as an emerging jurisprudence is really the jurisprudence of John Roberts, basically, right? Because you have the other conservative justices seem eager to take the view that state legislatures and state legislatures alone Mm -hmm. should control voting rules in all circumstances. And so that leads particularly Kavanaugh, but also Alito and Gorsuch, based on how they voted, leads them to say, we will overrule both federal courts and state courts if they conflict with legislative decision-making, whereas only Roberts is making the distinction and saying, we will overrule federal courts, but not state courts, right? So you're predicting basically that Barrett joins Roberts. Well, and Roberts and to an extent Kavanaugh. Um, But yeah, Ross, you're absolutely right that if you're going to slice the state onion, that something coming from the state legislature, that's what's going to really truly swing that Republican-nominated majority um, and Ross, you've been really good about talking about sort of aside from the the way conservative legal beagles can well actually, you know, talk about things like the Electoral College or the composition of the Senate. There is a popular legitimacy issue here. There's a popular legitimacy issue if you have, say, absentee ballots extended in one state and not extended in another state. And the Supreme Court has allowed it in one state and not in another state. 
Uh, you can say, well, there's a difference between what the states did and the federal courts did, et cetera, et cetera. But you leave the situation where maybe one swing state, like let's say Wisconsin, let's suppose that uh, Trump wins by 2,000 votes and there's 25,000 uncounted absentee ballots postmarked before Election Day. That's a recipe for a crisis. Is that so just, yeah, give us, I guess, since we've talked about this on the show, but without legal expertise, give us your worst case post-election scenario then. Yeah, my worst case post-election scenario is that the polls were wrong again for much the same reasons that they were wrong last time. But that uh, the difference is, and this is not an original scenario, that, you know, you had the red wave of in-person voting followed by the blue shift of the mail-in voting where some many states are barred from really starting the count until after the polls close on election day. And then you have the wave of litigation where the Republican emphasis is going to be relentlessly on greater restrictions on the ability of state election officials to count ballots, greater, stricter adherence to uh, signature matching, for example, stricter adherence to deadlines. And if they prevail, what you will end up with, just as a matter of fact, are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ballots that will be laying there where people tried to vote and they will be preventing officials from counting votes people tried to cast. And if you have a president elected again with a popular vote minority, and then there are thousands and thousands of votes that in theory could give the election to the winner of the popular vote if they're counted, but a series of Republican-appointed justices are denying the ability to count those votes, you you just won't see a 2,000 uh, gentlemen's withdrawal like you had from Al Gore. You just won't see it. And even if Joe Biden decided to do that out of institutional respect, you would see a massive press on the part of popular majorities, especially on the coast, to resist federal authority, to essentially treat the administration that is in the White House as an illegitimate administration. And for the first time in my life, I don't think it's likely, I don't think it's likely, but it's possible, it's plausible that you could have a real substantial constitutional crisis on your hands. So let's save the constitutional crisis for Seg B. As a bridge between the segments, uh, we had our old friend, former co-host David Leonhardt on the show last week, and I forced him against his will to make actual presidential predictions. Um, <laughs> so I need to do the same for Michelle, myself, and you, David. Um, let's have some predictions, I guess, both for the presidency and for the composition of the Senate. What do you think is going to actually happen next Tuesday and perhaps in the days that follow? Well, with all due acknowledgement that— Just assume the acknowledgement and make the <laughs> prediction. This is the this is the prediction that's going to be thrown in your face oh, by all of your Trump-supporting neighbors. Oh, I know, right? I know, yeah, yeah. With all the necessary throat clearing, I think it's going to be a 96 or a 92 scale victory for Joe Biden. I think that the polls will be a little bit wrong, and I think they'll be a little bit wrong in Biden's favor because the effort to— correct for 2016 polling to the extent that there's a flaw it was an overcorrection and that there is an oversampling of the of Trump's base and so i think that uh the combination of the massive early vote the incredibly high vote projections 
I just don't think Trump can find the sheer numbers of people he's going to need to find and the electoral college advantage that he has will be swamped. So I think he loses some core red states in addition to losing the swing states. Which ones? Well, North Carolina isn't really a core red state, but I think he loses. What happens in Georgia and Texas? I think he loses Georgia. And I... At this moment, I think it's 50-50 whether he loses Texas. And if he loses Texas, Trumpism is gone. It is gone. At that point, the GOP says, this guy lost Texas? It is power washed out of the GOP. And the Senate? Oh, I think the Republicans lose the Senate. I think they, I don't, I think the Senate is essentially gone as of right now. Michelle, I I can't imagine that you want to make predictions on a horrible, (laughs) tempting fate grounds, but I I have to ask you for them too. I find it so, I, I, as you know, I'm an atheist. I'm not a person who believes in any sorts of supernatural forces. Um, I have achieved nothing on this show over (laughs) two years, Michelle. You know, I mean, deep down, I think we're going to win, Georgia. I mean, deep down, I do think we're going to win, right? That's like why I'm functional, I send, you know, constant panic messages to my friends in democratic politics and swing states, and they generally seem optimistic. You know, I sent panic messages to the Biden campaign. They seem optimistic. Um, I really believe in the women I've met in Georgia. You know, the times when I've been most inspired in this last four years have really when I've gone to Georgia. You know, I first went to Georgia um, in these last four years. I went during the John Ossoff special election in 2017. And it was incredible to see all of these women who had been not that political, whose main civic involvements had been in their PTA and their homeowners associations had just become like political animals because they were so gutted by what had happened and so humiliated, right? It's so degrading to live under this man. And they, in the 6th District, you know, first they tried to push John Ossoff over the finish line. They couldn't do it. But then they they won with Lucy McBath's seat, right? So that Lucy McBath, um, Democratic woman, now sits in the seat once occupied by Tom Price and Newt Gingrich. And I could be wrong, but I think that seat is rated pretty safe right now. And so, you know, I believe in those women. I believe in Stacey Abrams, right? I mean, Stacey Abrams, I feel like people on the right sometimes don't understand what Democrats see in her, why she's become such a, a heroine to so many of us. And, you know, part of what she decided to do instead of running for Senate was just to register a lot more voters, go into African-American communities, rural African-American communities where people hadn't done a lot of voter outreach and really try to bring people into the process. And if you look at some of the I know you can't read too much into the early vote, but I believe in Georgia. And so that's kind of where all my hope lies, because I believe in those women. I think we will win Georgia and, and, and then you know, win the election, but I will not sleep well until it's all settled. So I also think Democrats will win the election. I think the Senate will be really tight and could end up 50-50. I think Democrats are likely to fall short in Texas. Um, And I think think my my main sort of pro-Trump prediction is that I just sort of assume that Republicans will pull out Florida when d- Democrats are only. Ahead I do by a too, few just because I feel like Florida is always going to let down Democrats f- until the end of time. Yeah, and so like anytime somebody is kind of waiting for the votes to come in from Broward County, you just know it's over. <laughs> so that's so my prediction is 
basically that Biden rebuilds the blue wall that people talked about across the upper Midwest that Trump was able to break and that he possibly that he I think I think Biden might win Iowa and that he does not do as well as Democrats hope um, quite across the South and Southwest, but that rebuilding that blue wall is enough for victory. Um, But yeah, that's my basic prediction. Biden wins reasonably easily. And if there's Trump's surprising Trump strength, it's South Southwest Hispanic vote. All right, let's pause there for a minute and take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. So now let's talk a little bit about your new book, David, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. It's a uh, vivid subtitle, and it's one that speaks to a lot of arguments that we've had on this show over the last couple of years. And I know, Michelle, you have some interesting immediate reactions to David's argument. Okay, so we were talking in the last segment about the potential um, constitutional crisis or kind of civic crisis if we have clear popular vote majority for Biden and a Supreme Court that basically doesn't let all the votes be counted. And David, you started talking about the kind of crisis you haven't seen in your lifetime. Do you just want to explain the premise of your new book, Divided We Fall? Yeah. So um, basically, I, I start in the first paragraph of the first page saying we cannot presume the continued unity of the United States indefinitely. And the reason for that is that there's no truly important cultural or political or religious or social force that's pulling us together more than it's pushing us apart. That whether it's the increasingly wide divide of secular and religious individuals, the increasingly wide ideological divide, the way in which we're doing the geographic big sort, even pop culture. It was fascinating to me that the Times did a series of viewership maps after the 2016 election and found out that a lot of the most popular shows just basically tracked the Hillary and Trump maps. Like Game of Thrones was a Hillary map show. Walking Dead was like a Trump map show. And so we're living increasingly separate lives and overlaying on top of that isn't sort of any degree of affection, but increasing animosity and mistrust and anger and disgust for each other across the political divide. And my argument is really pretty simple. Um, A nation cannot absorb those degree of continuing and exacerbating and angry differences indefinitely without something breaking. And that's, so the book is intended as an alarm bell that something could break 
in the society. We've had a lot of books about polarization, and I don't think that people have carried it out as to what this means, what could happen as a result of this level of angry difference in the United States. So I I agree with your premise. I often fantasize about a three-state solution to our current dilemma. The reason I feel like it ultimately wait wait wait, wait, wait. what are the what are the three states you know some sort of Atlantic country um, Cascadia on the west coast and then Trumplandia in the middle um, <laughs> Trumplandia and you know the reason that I have never you know actually come out for this is because I, I would like some sort of velvet divorce as opposed to a bloody civil war and also because it seems has always seemed to me like a kind of profound an act of like profound anti-solidarity because it's not as if all the people living in Trumplandia, right? That's not our division. Our division is urban versus rural. So it just sort of seems like saying, you know, screw you guys to the many people, the many, many, many people in the middle of the country whose, you know, kind of values and aspirations I share. That said, I do think the breakup of the United States would be preferable to living for former years under Donald Trump and under kind of continuing minoritarian governance, even if I don't think it's possible or feasible. And so I read your book, you know, particularly you have these these two chapters that are sort of fictional attempts to lay out the conditions um, on which either California or Texas might secede, you know, followed by other countries. And I, I know you didn't intend this, but I read the California chapter especially is like really, really um, hopeful <laughs> that in the, this is, you know, sort of projecting into the future, we have yet another Republican president chosen by a minority of the electorate, kind of imposing his will on the majority of the country. And maybe you want to explain the scenario um, kind of and how it gets to the point where California and then other states decide to leave the union. Yeah. Um, and, and those I'm glad you highlighted those middle chapters because honestly, they're kind of the make or break chapters because I've always had people say, well, how could this play out? And I thought, well, let's explore it. And essentially what I did is I, I took existing legal challenges and cultural challenges and I said, OK, let's suppose there is a horrible, horrible mass shooting in, in California. And it comes on the heels of other horrible, horrible mass shootings. And the mass shootings were carried out with weapons that the California, the people of California had tried to ban, but the Supreme Court had overruled uh, the, Cal- the, the, ban- the California bans to permit these weapons uh, to be on the streets of California. And Californians reacting in shock and horror choose to defy the Supreme Court again, passing a law that would, uh, in essence, confiscate that particular kind of weapon which leads to a constitutional crisis as California law enforcement starts to enforce that law. It's permitted to enforce it by um, the lower federal courts, and then the Supreme Court steps in. This creates enormous tension, which leads to opportunism on the part of the Republican president and a real sense of emergency self-defense on the part of the California governor. So the California governor says, our lives are at stake, and this minoritarian government is literally killing us. It's killing our kids. It's killing people in the streets through the flood of these weapons that we don't want. The people of California have said, we don't want. A president of the United States who um, doesn't look at California potentially separating as a problem, but as an opportunity, as a way to secure sort of conservative or right-wing governance for the indefinite future. And so out of a sense of short-term opportunism, kind of stands aside on the basis of specific conditions 
to allow California to vote to leave. And when California votes to leave in this sense of crisis and emergency, other states go with it because they don't want to be part of a permanent right-wing governance structure in the remaining states. And it's so interesting, Michelle, that you, you raise this because amongst people I've talked to on podcasts, one of the questions that I have been asked the most that I did not expect to be asked was, well, then why should we stay together? Right. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, I feel like the scenario that you lay out is relatively bloodless. It's not a war. At the end of it, everybody is sort of relieved about where things end up. And, you know, Ross has written this book called The Decadent Society about, you know, kind of us reaching maybe sort of terminal stage in cultural and political development that I know he hopes to transcend. But, you know, one of the things that you could (laughs) imagine is all of the new creative possibilities if these new states were actually allowed to govern the way their people want to be governed. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is here's where the the small C conservative in me comes out. I look at it and think, oh, my goodness, look at the possible catastrophes that could come out of the disillusion of this country. Because my fundamental point of view, and, and this is something I, I try to explain in the book, but apparently not done it well enough since some people find <laughs> some of the split scenarios appealing. <laughs> uh, but what I try to do is I try to say, look, there are ideals behind the foundation of the United States of America that are good. These ideas are good. Um, And that, yeah, we've not upheld them and we've sort of haltingly moved towards them, uh, sometimes three steps forward, four steps back, two steps forward. But it's a nation founded around a certain set of ideals that are good. And the, the, the what would replace that nation founded on those ideals in a disillusion, we don't know. It could be t- quite terrible. It could, you know, perhaps some of them could be good or better, but it it creates an instrument of, it would create an instrument of massive, massive historical and global chaos that we are just not prepared to handle. And we'd be sacrificing the ideals upon which this country was built. And so- And we would be effectively, the, the various factions would be effectively abandoning their fellow citizens. Right, that's, who, right. right. To me, that's the bad part. That's me. That's the sort of reason why, you know, as much as I like to think about this stuff, it's why I actually, you know, am not coming out for Cal exit and the like, right? To me, that's why this is kind of a non-starter. But I also see like a huge amount of appeal in it between these two Americas. I don't see where there's any overlapping values, any overlapping goals or conceptions of what the good society looks like. And, you know, one of the things I appreciate about your book is that you try to explain, you know, sort of how this crisis looks like to both sides and you, you know, you don't get into adjudicating between them as somebody who's a partisan of one of these sides. There, I don't know what precedent there is for the amount of, of sheer hatred and contempt that the modern Republican Party heaps on states that don't vote Republican, right? Heaps on the coasts. I mean, you have Josh Hawley saying that he's never going to vote for a blue state bailout, right? So we have been abandoned by this country. Um, And that goes on long enough. And it's hard for me to say what loyalty we owe in return. Yeah. You know, I think that what you're, one of the things about the Trump age that made me anti-Trump from way back was the cruelty, 
It was the sheer malice that exists. I didn't agree with every syllable of this essay, but I think one of the seminal essays of the time that sort of defined it is Adam Serwer's famous uh, essay, The Cruelty as the Point. And that is a marker of Trumpism, is, is cruelty. And you feel it very keenly, very keenly if you pose it. And, and I do think that, you know, what we're talking about often is what, what animosity breeds is absolutely the worst of us emerging onto the political scene. And I have a whole segment in the book about here is what the right's perspective is on what the left has done. And it pulls absolutely no punches. You know, for example, I think a lot of folks who support um, corporate activism really don't understand the extent to which if if a Apple or a, you know, other, a Disney want to boycott Georgia, but will do business in the People's Republic of China, the message that that sends to the people of Georgia. So essentially what's perceived here is that you hate us. It's not that you disagree with us, it's that you hate us, and you hate us enough to economically sanction us, and you hate us enough to deprive us of economic opportunity when you're willing to indulge in economic opportunity in places like the People's Republic of China or Saudi Arabia, where any idea that Georgia is comparable in any same universe as ballpark to the way in which people are treated in Saudi Arabia or China is ludicrous. But there's that animosity. There's animosity. And and you'll see this, I'm most familiar with it on the right because that's where I live. I live in very, very heavily Trump country. And I will hear time and time again, people will say things like, I'm for Trump because of Kavanaugh. I'm for Trump because of Covington Catholic. Um, I'm for Trump because it's the only way to to use the a, a Rich Lowry column title to send a, a middle finger to the left. So now, now I, I have to come in and make the case that this is not a completely accurate description of the situation. Go for it. So <laughs> first, to Michelle's point, yeah, there is a part of me that thinks America is decadent, that reads people imagining a Republic of Cascadia or a Republic of Texas and thinks, you know, yeah, that's not decadent. Maybe that is the path out of decadence, right? <laughs> so I, I will, I will, I will concede that I have a certain weird interest in some of these scenarios, and I'll also concede. I, I think that the more than the political, the theological separation of Americans is the most novel thing about this era, and in a sense, the most worrisome for the long-term future of the republic. Like, there's no sort of institutional theological center. And as someone who thinks that politics often sort of follows theological principles to some extent, witnessed Sunni and Shia in Iraq, that does worry me for the future of the country. However, some of what you guys are both describing, I really think is a sort of, it's a function of a minority of Americans who are deeply engaged in politics and in many cases deeply engaged in the internet imposing their feud on a larger country that really is not as engaged with it as people who listen to podcasts and read twitter.com tend well, to think. Uh, yeah, I think like that, lots of people extent, voted. Look, you're, look, in some ways you're right. This, that's why I don't think this is ever going to happen. But like or, lots of or people. Or at least I think it's at, at this point such a distant possibility that you would need many, many turns of the screw for it even to become a live issue. Never mind, you know, fait accompli. But I also think that, you know, you're obviously right that it's a minority of people who are deeply, deeply 
involved in politics, it's not a minority of people who are suffering the consequences of this sort of spiteful abandonment. But this is like a breakdown at the elite level, right? Like in the sense that like you could make a similar argument about the people who voted for Trump in 2016, not all of them, but some percentage of those industrial Midwest voters basically felt that both political parties had done what Trump tries to do to California, right, had basically abandoned them, shipped their jobs overseas, sent their kids to die in Iraq, and by the way, let an opioid epidemic overtake their communities. And nobody in Washington and New York even noticed until Trump started running for president. But that's a breakdown at the level of governance in New York and Washington, D.C. It doesn't mean that those voters are all in these sort of polarized camps. And you can tell they're not in these polarized camps because they literally swung to Trump and a lot of them are swinging back to Biden. And I guess the the case for sort of hope about the potential unity of America is, one, there's much more interpenetration of right and left-leaning voters, even now, than you would think from being online. Like, I live, you know, I live in New Haven, Connecticut, incredibly blue city. I can drive two towns over and be in Trump country. I don't have to go across the Mason-Dixon line or something. Well, look, that's there is true Trump in New York country. City. I can drive to Staten right. Island. Right. But to, but that means that, like, you know... The, and that's the, why this isn't feasible, but that's... But it's not just not feasible. It's not a... It, it doesn't describe the problems that we're describing are problems that that are problems of elite-level governance... Let me square the circle a little bit because I agree with you, Ross, that a lot of the division here is, and the data shows it, that the division is driven by, for lack of a better term, I guess there's been some attention paid to political hobbyists, people who are highly online, people who are highly engaged. And there's a lot of it is driven at this sort of elite level. There's some interesting um, research I talk about in the book where the people who are actually most engaged politically are often the most wrong about their political opponents, overreading their extremism because they're getting this sort of steady diet of news that exaggerates the perfidy of their opponents. But my concern is that that's who the people who are most engaged are the ones who ultimately drive the bus. You know, whatever institution you're involved in, it's the people who care the most who define it. And they're, you know, the more in common project has this really interesting study of hidden tribes, and it describes this group of people called an exhausted majority. And the key word for that is exhausted, not majority. And the people who have the energy right now are polarizing us at a remarkable rate. And elite revolutionary movements driven by an elite are not an aberration in this country. The American Revolution had an extreme amount of elite movement behind it. And, you know, my view is, I think this would just be catastrophic. I mean, the book is intended to say, stop. We have to have an alternative way of doing this. Okay, but David, let me ask you this. What should, I mean, let's say either Donald Trump wins again, you know, despite losing even more of the popular vote, or as you know, you, as you posit it in one of your scenarios, another Republican wins again and then is you know, ratified by an even more Republican Supreme Court, why should the majority, the the sort of oppressed majority, tolerate those circumstances? If the majority had confidence that the democratic process worked well enough that they could win again in the future, then the- Why should they have that confidence is what I'm asking. Well, I know. Well, that's one of the problems that you have. Let me put it this way. If it could get worse before it gets better, 
But if um, a set of Americans believe that the normal rules of the democratic process under which they have agreed to abide no longer protect their core fundamental values. Right. And that I do believe. That That's a recipe for instability. And so that's why I really pivot hard towards pluralism in the book, that we have to create a culture that you have a place in this country, even across vast differences. And, and that's sort of the, the ultimate goal of pluralism. I don't think we'll unite under a common worldview in this country. Uh, Ross is right. We have big theological differences, but we can grant each other space to build political communities that advance our values. I think that's the way through this wilderness. And that's a great positive note to end on. And so, David, as our special guest, we've asked you to be our recommender this week to give us something to take our minds, however temporarily, off the impending election. What do you have for us? I have the maybe the last unifying piece of pop culture left in the United States of America. And it's two words, Ted Lasso. This is the okay. This is an Apple (laughs) TV comedy about an American football coach who is hired to coach an English Premier League soccer. Well, they call football team, and it sounds silly. It's actually based, I believe, on old NBC commercials. It stars Jason Sudeikis, and I had people sending me messages: "Watch Ted Lasso. Watch Ted Lasso." And I, okay, I will. And I was hooked from the first ten minutes. There was this great article in The Ringer that says, why is this so good? (laughs) Um, It is something that actually is, it's funny and it has heart and it displays just a ton of uh, warmth and humanity and you laugh out loud. And I I promise you, you will not go wrong. Apple TV plus Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis. It's great. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, guys. That's our show for the week. Thank you for listening and for sticking with us throughout this crazy campaign. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Allison Bruzek, Isaac Jones, Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, Paula Schumann, Vishaka Darba, Kate Sinclair, and Kathy Tu. See you next Friday on The Other Side. That's what's difficult. I don't think that you can come up on a podcast with a legal rule that's going to satisfy anybody. But I think to the extent you have what's, a what's the point of bias. podcasting then? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs>